Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network is a mouthful to say, but <laughs> I was able to get through it. I'm David Kern. I'm joined by Heidi White and we are here to talk about Henry V, Act 2. Heidi, how's it going? Oh, I am doing great. We are leaving for Phoenix in the morning, so I'm kind of running around like a chicken with my head cut off. And we just got back from Georgia. Scott had a business meeting down there, brought me with him. But consolations, I just received a gift from a friend of mine who lives in Washington, D.C., where the new Museum of the Bible has opened. And she bought me for Christmas a facsimile of the Gutenberg Bible, an exact facsimile of it, bound, just beautifully bound, beautiful paper. Uh, It's just gorgeous. So I can't stop touching it. And so that is making my day great. (laughs) And I get to talk about Shakespeare. Yeah, but how come she didn't get you the real one? I know, right? It's like people don't want to sell kidneys on the black market to buy me their Christmas Christmas presents. I don't know why. Anyway, um, speaking of selling kidneys, does that have something to do with this yeah. play? I don't know, maybe. Somewhere. Um, just souls, just yeah. selling of souls. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, we're here to talk about Act 2 of Henry V. Thanks to everyone who's been chiming in on our conversation about Act 1. Don't forget that you can join in on that conversation over on the Facebook page. And then if you have questions or anything that you want to send, you can send those either on the Facebook page or you can Facebook group, Facebook page, whatever. Or you can email them to us at closereadspods at closereadspods podcast at gmail.com. Also, quickly, don't forget about the new Instagram page. We're going to ramp that up here soon, but we have lots of giveaways we're going to do. And there's lots of different stuff going on on the Close Reads Podcast Network. So Instagram, uh, in addition to Facebook, will be a great way to keep up with things, especially if you are more of an Instagram person than a Facebook person, um, at least as far as user experience, because they're pretty much owned by the same people. Um, but if you like Instagram better, we're trying to give you some options to get information and content as well. And finally, we just launched a new podcast called Libromania in which I've mentioned it before, but the first episode is now up. And it's in that I'm going to be discussing all the things that basically make 
being a book nerd, awesome. <laughs> Someone described it as a podcast for bookish people, which I kind of like. But I'll be talking to critics and writers about um, their process. And I'll be talking to scientists about some of the things behind books. And I'll be talking to book designers and book uh, book collectors and publishers and you know all those historians, biographers, scholars, all those sorts of things. All the things that make books awesome, we are going to be chatting about. So that feed is now up. You can head over to iTunes. The other feeds are coming soon, um, Spotify and so forth. But the, uh, the feed on iTunes is now up. So you can subscribe there if you're an iTunes user. Uh, and you can also listen to it on closereadspods.com. So just want to let people know about that. Spread the word, leave us reviews, um, star reviews, comment reviews, all that stuff really helps in terms of get, getting an audience and uh, getting people to be involved. Oh, thanks, Graham. Graham just brought me tea. Oh, um, Graham. That's the best. I mean, it's not a Gutenberg Bible, but... Right, it's close. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, 5% less, less cool yeah. than that? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so all that, we've so much good stuff out there. We're, of course, talking about... Um, the Great Gatsby over on the regular Close Reads, the original, the flagship feed, whatever you want to call it. We've got the daily poem going on and going through Christmas poems right now. And I'll be doing that up through Epiphany mostly. I might take a break here and there for, you know, like Christmas Day. But we'll be going through um, lots of different great Christmas related poems for the next few weeks. So we have a ton of stuff for you. If you want to keep up, you can do it on social media. And then the last thing I'll say, this is, I think this is the third time I said it was the last thing I'll say, but I'll add it anyway. If you want to be on the email list. You can also sign up for that. And that's you can sign up for that over at closereadspods.com. And every couple of weeks, ideally, I'll be sending out links related to the books that we're reading, uh, scholarship on them, articles on them, and as well as updates on news and future books and ske- reading schedules and all that sort of thing. So the Close Reads Podcast Network is hopping. So blowing thanks f- up. Thanks for being a part of it. And um, yeah, it's been awesome. So let's talk, let's talk act two of Henry V. I was telling, I sent Heidi a Slack, and I will let her talk at some point, but I sent her a Slack um, to basically today saying that I didn't know if I was going to get the reading done. But then I sat down to read it, and at first I was kind of bored. I'm going to admit it, I was pretty bored at first. And then it got really interesting. And so I was kind of confused about why I actually sort of found this section interesting. Not confused, like in this, the fact that it's like it's Shakespeare, so obviously it's interesting. Compared to that first act, it's sort of it's sort of slow. It kind of goes all over the place. There's all these new characters and stuff. So I want to kind of hash out what makes like what's Shakespeare doing here with this act, and why all these new characters, and why the sort of shift in tone. So those are questions that I have, and then subsequently, why did I actually end up enjoying it given all those things? What's your take on Act Two, Heidi? I told you well, I'd let you talk and- eventually. <laughs> Maybe. And typical, right? I'll just give a kind of a short few thoughts, and then you can talk the rest of the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is kind of what happens with Shakespeare. I remember you and I talking about, can we really just do it with just the two of us? And of course we can, because there's so much to say about Shakespeare, especially these history plays, which, as we talked about last time, have this ambiguity to them, and so and it invites debate and discussion and kind of delving into those questions. So uh, the tone does shift in Act Two, and then there's also a couple of structural reasons for the for this act being what it is. One is Shakespeare has to get, you know, he's got five acts in all of his plays and the third act uh, in almost every one kind of peaks in the action. And so he's got to get all the plot and character development, all the major themes, all the motifs, everything kind of into those first two acts so that he can get to the climax of the story in act three and then acts four and five can unravel 
uh, all of those things um, and take, get a different take on them. Instead of the action building, it's declining and resolving. Uh, so in Act 2, there's a lot in almost all of Shakespeare's plays. There's a lot packed into Act 2 and Henry V is no exception to that. Mm. Yeah, and and we obviously get in the, in Act One we get this big sort of global conflict set up, but it's surrounded um, that that conflict is sort of built around some very specific questions about a very specific person. So there's these global ideas, whether it's the war between these two rival countries or this kind of global. Um, huge philosophical question about what it means to be a king, but it's sort of all surrounding this one person in the, in the king. But then in act two here, it, it kind of, the king's only in it for one scene. Um, he gives this nice, extremely long monologue, which must be fun to perform. But it's the, the act is built around all these other characters. So in fact, it begins with commoners, which I was really intrigued by. And we have all this courtly stuff going on in act one. And then we have some more of that in Act 2, but intertwined between those like courtly, all that sort of like, you know, castle intrigue, so to speak, all the political intrigue are these sort of commoners, these average people. And, you know, the, I mean, they're friends of, you know, Falstaff was a friend of the king, but what do you make of Shakespeare taking such a step back from all the courtly stuff, all that castle intrigue, and just putting us in the world of these commoners at the beginning of Act 2? Because it's a very, that's where the, I think that's where the, the tone does shift. Yes, I agree with you, David. And I think that's a really good question about this whole play, right? Again, last week we talked about how there's uh, all of this strategy and intrigue in these court politics taking place. Uh, and then it kind of abruptly, as you pointed out, shifts into this low plot, which is more common in the comedies for Shakespeare to have Can I a stop you plot. there just first? Yeah. Okay. So you talk about low plot, you kind of say it as if it's sort of a technical thing. So for people who don't know, can you kind of explain what a low plot, what you mean by that? And is that like, would you say it's low plot, capital L, capital P? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I probably, in my mind, it's capitalized. Uh, it's like a real thing. Yeah, yes, it is a literary term. So, uh, and, and this is something that Shakespeare, it's a, actually, I don't want to get too sidetracked because there's so much in this play, but it's something Shakespeare in many ways invented. High plots and low plots, uh, uh, let me first define it and then I'll talk about that. Sure. A high plot in Shakespeare is uh, kind of the main plot that has to do with upper class characters, usually in a courtly setting. And again, this is really common in the comedies. You guys just did Much Ado About Nothing. You definitely have a high plot and a low plot in Much Ado. For those listeners who are tracking here, the high plot happens with uh, with Count Claudio. There's you know titled characters who have leadership and are on, in the upper echelons of their society and kind of the intrigues, the love, the chaos and the, and the unraveling and the reordering of the world that happens uh, in with these high characters, these higher status characters. Uh, and then to contrast that, Shakespeare often will throw in a low plot, uh, which is, as you pointed out, commoners lower class characters, uh, tradesmen, even in this case, we have some a, a woman who's running a brothel, right? So these are definitely not high class in high society. A lot of them are servants to the high plot characters. That's pretty common or connected in some way. And the low plot mirrors the high plot in theme, but has a separate plot structure. Uh, so 
For example, in this particular play, we see in the first, in Act 2, Scene 1, an 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 instance of conflict over betrayal over the rightful claim of two men over a woman. And then it ends up Mm. being that actually Mm. one of them just wants his money and was kind of using the woman as an excuse to start a fight, but really he just wants the guy to pay his debt. So that's what happens in act two, scene one, uh, these low plot characters, but that mirrors the theme that's actually happening on the national level. The chess pieces are happening between England and France in the high plot. So it's the same theme, just in a different context with different class characters, which kind of ties these two things together. Um, And it's a really interesting thing to watch in a Shakespeare play. The other benefit of this particular scene, or these two scenes in Act 2 that we see, are that we find out then what happens to some of the characters from Henry's past, back when he was Prince Hal. Um, we see obviously the death of Falstaff, uh, which happens in an offstage in a very surprising kind of anticlimactic way. Mm-hmm. A lot of people feel yeah, really let yeah. down by this scene who are Falstaff fans. Mm. Uh, and, and then we also see kind of this, they're still living the same life. Like Henry has, Henry is, he's no longer the wild Prince Hal. He's now the King. And not only is he the King, but he's turning out to be a really, really good King. And that, but these guys are kind of still the same. And, but the action is then mirroring what's happening in court. So there's a little bit of a paradox there. I love that you mentioned the sort of the, 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 I guess this part of the low plot conflict of these two men who are after the same woman. And one of them really wants (laughs) his money because obviously that mirrors the sort of real plot, the high plot Mm -hmm. of they're both after the crown, you know, Um, they're both after, I mean, they're, they're, they're both after, um, well, and even, even Henry's claim is through his mother, right? Isn't that right? Yes. So it's through, it's through a woman, basically. Hmm. Um, not basically, literally, (laughs) um, I'm assuming his mother was a woman. Um, and (laughs) I, I love like the way, see, and, and here's what I love about Shakespeare. Most people, they do that. And you're like, immediately the second you read it, you're like, oh, I see what you did there, trying to be clever, you know, putting these things, weaving all these things together. But he can, and, and then it kind of draws attention to itself. And it feels a little on the nose, right? Shakespeare mm-hmm. can layer these things together in a way that, and yeah, you'll, you'll think, if you think about it, you'll think, oh, I see what he's doing. He's, he's mirroring conflicts, um, which is, of course, that's, that's classic literary stuff, right? But he, he mm-hmm. does it in a way that is, is so subtle and so built around character. So we look at it the first time you think about it. I mean, unless you're like actively trying to just think in terms of literary tropes all the time, which I don't encourage, then you're, you know, you're, and you're looking at recognizing it as character. So it feels so real to the characters, right? It doesn't feel like it's contrived to only in service of, of establishing something meaningful about the higher plot. The low plot feels lived in. It feels real. It feels just as much a part of the play and just as meaningful to me anyway, as does this sort of, castle intrigue high plot and like mm-hmm. that's the thing that sets shakespeare apart i think and makes him so lasting is that he, and it could be you could have characters who are in the play for like three or four scenes and they become memorable and they feel their their performance well not their performances but their characters their lines everything about them feels so real and human and lived in and that's what so i think that's a miraculous accomplishment by shakespeare 
Oh, I couldn't agree more with that. I think you you nailed that. You said that really well. And at the time, to go back to what I started to say before I define that and to add on to what you're saying, subplots or secondary plots, low plots at the time of Elizabethan, the writing of Elizabethan drama were considered flaws because back at that time, uh, the playwrights were still trying to write within the framework of classical unities, the unity of time and place mm-hmm. that Aristotle did and Aristotle wrote about in Poetics. And so that was considered the best kind of play. So what Shakespeare did is he came and he subverted that form. He changed it. He brought in common characters, uh, like we said, people who were tradesmen, you know, partly I'm sure as a marketing tool to bring in those tickets, right. To get people to want to come to have somebody to relate to. So there's got to be some kind of, of, of marketing gimmick in there as well, but he did it, as you point out so beautifully. And he draws these characters. They're not stock characters. They're human characters. They contribute to the pathos of the play. uh, And, and it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like too complicated, uh, especially if you watch a performance and reading it on paper. Sometimes, as you point out, you start reading this scene and you're like, I have no idea who these people are. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) This is so boring. Um, but if you or it see takes, it performed, at least it takes a minute. Yeah, it's true. But when you see it performed, it just feels so natural. And that is, I mean, truly genius to make these plots so complicated with so many characters. And yet in just a few short lines to humanize them and make them endearing. And again, tie them into the thematic elements of the, of the high plot. It, I mean, Shakespeare, I don't even know how that guy even happened. That's one of those... <laughs> Like, it makes me kind of mad sometimes. I'm like, how are you so good? <laughs> well, he maybe really he was six is. people. Yeah, he was... Well, no, he was not. I don't know. <laughs> I read all those you're articles. Not a, you're not a part of a conspiracy theory? <laughs> no, there was one Homer and one Shakespeare. So. I wrote a, I wrote a um, college paper on that, actually. So I did a lot of research on it. And I didn't really mm-hmm. come out of it. I thought it was all kind of silly. But I mean, it's, it's kind of fun to, to read. It's more fun to read about people having theories and how they pursued their theories than any of the theories themselves. <laughs> it really is true. And it just because comes crazy out of people that are same. Interesting. It's true. Crazy people are interesting. And really the whole crux of the argument is that nobody was ever could be possibly be that much of a genius. That's really the argument they're making. But I think there really was that Shakespeare is that much of a genius. And I, it's amazing. Do you, so, think, we'll ever, anyway. do you think we'll ever get to Shakespeare again? I don't know. I hope so. Good question. This is where you say, David, you are Shakespeare. No, I know. I was just saying, I wish it could be me, but it's not. Or you. I'd just settle for you. <laughs> Dude, that's, a, that's a terrifying, sad thought. Um, <laughs> just ask my wife, right? So, um, but, but I, that is a very interesting question. Like, what is, is it even possible that our culture could, or, or, Maybe our culture is too narrow of a way of thinking about it, but our time, our age, I mean, is it even possible to produce someone like Shakespeare? Because, you know, like the things that he's doing are not, I mean, like he invented a lot of things and he, and he did things in a way that was better than anybody else had done them before. But, but there's also a lot of people who are out there working who can manage to accomplish what he does in, in terms of, you know, um, some of the craftsmanship and the formal elements that he's doing. People, people are doing amazing things, whether it's in novels or, or films, and people have accomplished great things since then. Um, and so I, I think all the time about like when we, we all sort of accept that Shakespeare is the greatest ever, right? Except maybe Homer, uh, theoretically, right. if, you, if you, you know, if you like work for Cersei. But, but, uh, 
<laughs> but, but like, but like I said, there are people, I mean, people have accomplished amazing things and other people can, can manage to sort of harness the literary elements and the artistic um, elements that, that, that Shakespeare managed to harness in a way that's really beautiful and really meaningful as well. But like, what is it that specifically makes that, what is it about him that everybody agrees he's like either the greatest or the second greatest writer of all time? I mean, depending on what you think of Dante or Milton or whatever, but generally speaking, it's Homer and Shakespeare that generally yeah. people assume are the best. Mm-hmm. And it can't just be that he's able to harness these, these tropes and these themes. There's something else going on because other people have done that. What do you mm-hmm. think that is? I, if I was to say it very simplistically, which you know, I could rhapsodize about it for hours. But if I were to say well, that's it- that's why very, we're here. Right? Which, that's not the best thing ever. Um, to say it in a nutshell, I, I would say it is his mastery of, of the unity of, of form and meaning. Mm. That Go on. Like his, Shakespeare is a formalist. If you can dig into one line of, say, Romeo and Juliet, um, it's- you know, even the most famous scene, right? Uh, the the balcony scene, and when Juliet says, "Rose by any other name would smell as sweet," right? So that line of Shakespeare is immediately obvious what it means, and yet you could it has scholars have racked their brains about that for the century since it was written, just in that one line which is in the context of an entire poetic speech, in the context of the scene, in the context of the play, in the context of the canon of Shakespeare, in the context of Western culture and philosophy, right? Somehow, through his use of language, he's able to capture meanings that are almost bottomless. And in this particular play, in Henry V, you have the, the question, which is in the chorus of Act Two. We, if, if you're following along with us, you've read it. And the chorus, he, this is the famous line of Henry V, calling him the mirror of all Christian kings. You can read that line, and you kind of just know what it means just by reading the words. But if you want to dig into that line, you can write a treatise upon treatise about what that means. It's unity of form and language that is... Excuse me, form and meaning, his mastery of language to express both precision and ambiguity that is almost unparalleled. Plus, then also the formal elements of writing a play, characterization and plot um, that you can take an obvious plot to lovers falling in love and then killing themselves for love, right? That's that's a pretty common plot in Western culture, but in Shakespeare's hands, it turned into Romeo and Juliet, whose appeal will never die. It became universally acknowledged as one of the greatest love stories ever. So um, I think that that mastery of language to unify form and meaning is Shakespeare's unparalleled genius. And I don't think anybody's even come remotely close other than, as you say, Homer, who I think had the same ability. Hmm even translated. Yeah, of course, we can all argue about the various um, various translations and what each line should do, whether, you know, whether it should be more poetic, poetic or literal or what have you. But that is interesting that despite the things that could be lost in translation, there's some sort of universally 
well, universal appeal is a really reductive way of putting it, but there is sort of mm-hmm. a universal appeal to what he's doing there. And right. Shakespeare speaks, you know, Shakespeare, the way he mastered the language that he was in, in a language that was somewhat um, limited and certainly wasn't mm-hmm. extravagant or popular or even in some ways as beautiful as Greek or Latin or even French or German or the other languages that were quite ancient. Not that English wasn't old, but the version that he was using of it certainly wasn't compared to the other languages. So he harnessed something in that, in the way, you know, to your point, he was able to harness something in that language and make something of it. There's something so, you know, so creative about that, like truly creative, not creative in a sort of simplistic sense, but like truly creative. Like he took some sort of clay that was I'm trying to avoid mixing metaphors, but he took clay that was, you know, had never been shaped in anything before. Well, that's not true, but had been in a very limited degree, had been shaped into mm-hmm. something very formal. And he made something really amazing out of it. And again, I there's, I know there's Chaucer, I know there's all mm-hmm. these other people, but sure. You know, it, the version that he was using was not even the same version as what Chaucer was using a couple hundred years before him or whatever it is. So um, I, I think that's one of the most amazing things about what he about what he did. He came along at a very specific time and place and both used and made a language, you know, mm-hmm. he a very sort of immature language, so to speak, uh, and made it into something grown up. Well, he grown up is again, I'm trying to avoid mixing metaphors, but he made it into something mature. And I think that's incredible. I agree with that completely and seem to just delight in it and almost find it effortless after a while. If you you read his career throughout his canon of his career chronologically, uh, which I did a few years ago, it's so, it's like delightful. It's almost like you can see him coming alive to what words can do. If you go from his earlier plays, you read something like Love's Labor's Lost, which is a great play, but it is, it's not, it's a good play is probably a better way of saying it. Love's Labor's Lost, it's a good play. His early plays are good. And then it kind of shifts into this season of, you know, the Richard III, um, kind of the early comedies. You start to see him come alive. And then you get to Romeo and Juliet, and it's almost like this shift in that particular play of like, I can make words do amazing things. And then from then on out, it's just boom, boom, boom. Like just these masterpieces that, and the rate in which he, he wrote them 38 plays in 20 years of that magnitude of greatness is, I mean, it is a remarkable achievement um, to write, you know, two or three plays a year. Of, of that much mastery over the English language, to your point, which had never been put to such artistic use before, mm. at a popular level too. You're getting people off the street paying a penny to come see Shakespeare. So that's, the, yeah, like you said, I don't know if Shakespeare could ever be replicated. I have no idea, but I, I, I just want to sit at his feet. Hmm. It's, it's amazing too that it, you know, hundreds of years later, even as the language has, has evolved as languages do and as cultures have evolved and um, the ways we think about language have evolved, even so with all that change, we can st- we still look at the verse that he wrote uh, and almost without exception are like, it still holds up mm-hmm. as beautiful poetry. I was thinking about this because of the daily poem where I'm reading all these different poems, men- poets, many of them, 
as old as Shakespeare or older and uh, many of them contemporary. And, you know, his verse, even if it sounds a little campy, like thematically at times, the way some of his sonnets do, you know, sort of, Mm -hmm. um, the language, the precision and the, 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 um, capacity for harnessing it, um, is, is, it still holds up and that's incredible. Like, I mean, you evenly look at Homer. I mean, I don't read Homer in Greek. I don't read it quite for that reason. Right. But Shakespeare does that in a way in, in our language. And, you know, he, he gave us our, he said to gave us our language as something that mm-hmm. was truly meaningful and transcendent. Yes, that's true. The language that the versions that we know of it. Anyway, we, just, we went on quite a tangent there. Um, uh, that again, that's the point of the show, I suppose. So, um, <laughs> So, I'm glad you brought up the um, the chorus for Act Two because mm-hmm. I was thinking about how without that, that whole act would feel very even more abrupt. Yes, um, you'd be pretty lost. Do you do you find yourself liking or Bardolph, Nim, Pistol, all those those characters? You said they mm-hmm. were kind of endearing earlier, and I was trying to figure out if that's the I word think- that I would use for them. No, I no, I don't particularly like them. I think the 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 adjective endearing, I think I used that in the con I, I think I meant more kind of that nostalgic feeling you get when you know characters from a different context and you see them right. show up again somewhere else. That yeah, that's yeah. that so nostalgia nostalgic is maybe a better word than endearing. Because mm-hmm. I mean they're just kind of jerks, right? They're low lifes. And so um, yeah, in some ways that kind of does make yeah. them endearing in contrast with these sort of these sort of really rich kings and people just kind of yelling at each other. <laughs> That's a good point. Like that the court manners, the ceremony, which becomes a big deal in this play that characterizes the high plot is missing. And so there's something refreshing about just some people say what they mean, if they are saying what they mean, right? So that's... Um, and that's one of the things that gets into, it starts off with Nim saying that he wants um, Pistol, that he wants to fight him because of Hostess, who is that? Miss Nell Quickly. But uh, later on, it just turns out he wants his money because the guy owed him money. So once he offers to pay him back, then he's like, okay, then we're cool. So um, it really wasn't about the lady the whole time. Um, who later in the play we <laughs> find out dies lady. of venereal disease anyway. So, um, <laughs> so she doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. <laughs> so she was never the paragon of virtue that Nim claimed for her to that he wanted her for. Um, why do you think so, he begins Act Two with them though? Like, why not? I mean, I know, I know it's more like balanced if you go back and forth, but. Um, he begins this act. He, in fact, the chorus even goes through the whole scenario that's going to be in scene two. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, but you know, before we get to that, while the king's traveling, we're going to send you over to, where does he say? Like Southampton or something like that. Yeah. Um, we're going to head over to Southampton and meet these friendly people over in this pl- weird place. Uh, while the king, so what do you make of that? Why does he do that? It's a good question. And I, I, I looked that up this week and some people said things like scene, you know, costume changes and and scene changes they kind of needed a low plot happening at one side of the stage so they could set things up at another part so that there's kind of a performance oriented reason for that and I'll I'll buy that and I think that that may have been part of it but I think he's 
building some tension here to get to Falstaff because Shakespeare had made a promise to people that Falstaff would be back. And of course, he breaks that promise and Falstaff is never in this play. His death is in this play, but Falstaff's not a character in the play. And it's only sort of in the play. It's just because she sort of tells the story. Yes. And it's a really sad scene. Yes. She comes back and as at scene three. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, so we have the chorus, which I, you know, is another kind of drumming up of patriotism. And so I wonder if the low plot is a little bit to subvert the chorus's kind of overly glowing patriotism. I think Shakespeare's oh, okay. like, I can't breathe up here too much. Like, there's no air up here. I'm just like making this patriotic dribble. So then brings in these low plot characters. That's was, another pretty common theory. I was thinking about how the way they speak is so different in some ways than the rich people. Mm-hmm. The, I call yeah. them the rich people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like we're reading like all, it's like Oliver Twist we're reading here. Um, <laughs> It's like a Dickens book, but um, <laughs> with the courtly stuff, and it, and I found it interesting how much, um, uh, more more. It, well, this is this may be actually this. Now that I think about it, this, may could be completely unique to me. I find them way less comprehensible <laughs> than the. Yeah than the, the courtly people. Now there's obviously probably that makes some sense because they're being, um, the courtly people are being sort of proper in their way of speaking as is the English want. But um, the, there's also, they're talking about much more complicated things the the courtly people are. And yet the people, Nim and Bardolph and Pistol and all that, I have no idea what they're saying half the time. It takes me a long time to read. It's like I'm reading Cockney or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Do you do you think? I mean, it's not. I I was thinking it doesn't. He in sometimes. I mean, there's still iambic, but there's a lot less verse going on here Mm -hmm. um, among many of these characters, except Pistol, interestingly, who speaks Mm -hmm. in verse. Do you think that that is? um, um, Well, obviously, it's on purpose. But what do you make of? this sort of contrasting way that they're speaking, are we supposed to, is it, is that to make it, make these people seem like the people who are in the audience uh, and to draw a really clear distinction between them? Um, or are they meant to, to really, I mean, is there meant to be, are we meant to draw something positive or negative from them? I spe- I guess is what I'm asking. Are we meant to like them more or yeah. less because of the way they speak? Right. I think that's a, that's a good question. I, I, it is interesting that Pistol speaks in verse while a lot of the other characters in this scene speak in prose. As you point out, there's still it's still rhythmic prose, uh, but it is prose. Um, and so I think some of that is uh, I never I I never know what Shakespeare is. I'm very very wary of of the, the claim of what Shakespeare is trying to do. Right. I have that in air quotes that, um, right. right. Like and that's, is, that's a totally unfair yeah. question. I admit. Right. What is Shakespeare trying to do here? I don't know if Shakespeare, I, if, if, if the main question of Shakespeare is what are you supposed to think or feel about any character? Because the characters are so, humanized all of them even in this scene with the low plot like you can really see who is this man nim by the end of the play you know bardolph you know nim are, are even 
I didn't mean play. I meant this scene. Yeah, like you yeah. can tell the difference in the characters specifically if you specifically if you see this performed. Um, so the characters are so humanized, and yet they're so obviously low lives. So the question of what are we supposed to think or feel about characters in Shakespeare, I think is, um, I think my answer to that is always whatever you think or feel is about these characters is valid because Shakespeare humanized them so much. It's the same thing as asking, what do you think about your neighbor next door? Somebody's going to like her, somebody's going to not, you know? So that's, there's not necessarily supposed to in your emotional reactions to these characters. But I think that the, the, the question that you're asking is really important in the sense of what is the audience supposed to make of these little scenes with these low plots? Like what, what does it add to the play? What does it, what does it do for us? And I think some of that with um, the, the first, let's see, if you go to the, the beginning of the prologue, the first lines of the prologue is now all the youth of England are on fire and silken dalliance in the wardrobe lies. Now thrive the armors and honors thought reigns solely in the breast of every man. Could there be a more patriotically stirring mm -hmm. idea than the entire nation is armoring itself for this patriotic war on behalf of their mirror of all Christian kings? Right. And then the very next scene, you go to the average Englishman mm -hmm. who is just brawling in a bar at the back alley of, in London over a woman and over whatever, eight a bob or whatever it is so you see the contrast someone do the, someone do the math for us we need to know what that is exactly. in today's american money yes what can so i buy for that like, what much. are we actually fighting over yes so what you have is you have this stirring patriotism contrasted with actual people that the king knows in his former life and then moving on to scene two, which is the betrayal of the king and then his vengeance and justice upon these treasonous lords. And so in a way that that works very beautifully thematically um, to raise the spirits and then also to subvert it right away and then also to lead into another scene of moral ambiguity for Henry. Mm. I like that you mentioned that that line about uh, that really patriotic line because right after that it says they sell the pasture now to buy the horse you yep. didn't read that line i don't think they mm -hmm. um following the mirror of all christian kings and so they sell the pasture and then there's this argument about the money and so you have um this you have this sort of subtle sort of conflict being set up not just between the english and the french or between these two guys that are going after the woman but this sort of not maybe not a conflict but a, a there's the very distinct difference between even these people who are fighting on the same side between the commoners and the royals and like are they after the same thing so there's this sense of patriotism that henry and his lords have managed to imbue the people with and sort of inspire but what are they actually sort of fighting for and that's one of the big questions that act one brings up and then if you look at scene three where exeter is in the french court he makes these he makes this grand speech on behalf of henry and the french king's like yeah or what right or what follows right. um, which is what i'm going to start telling my kids or else what follows um <laughs> but um he says bloody constraint 
And th- mm-hmm. so this, this ties back into that theme. Bloody constraint, for if you hide the crown, even in your hearts, there will he rake for it. Therefore, in fierce, fierce tempest is he coming, in thunder and earthquake like a jove, that if, requ- that if requiring fail, he will compel, and bids you in the bowels of the Lord deliver up the crown, and then this bit here, and to make mercy on the poor souls for whom this hungry war opens his vasty jaws, and on mm-hmm. your head turning the widow's tears, the orphan's cries, the dead man's blood, the privet maiden's groans, for husbands, fathers, and betrothed lovers that shall be swallowed in this controversy. And so it, it these people that are going to be swallowed up, this is the Nim, this is the Bardolph, uh, this mm-hmm. is pistol and he, so and, yes. and they're still those those are the people who they're fighting this war but their primary concerns on the verge of leaving for war are eight bob or whatever it is right and they, they can't escape the fact that they don't have that like that not having eight bob yeah it's kind of comical in the sense that they're fighting over nothing when or it's set up like they're fighting over a woman but really they need this guy needs this money or he wants this money. But that's a meaningful thing to someone who has no money. Every little bit when you are commoner matters, right? Um, and, and, it's, and the lords, the kings, the people who are fighting over crowns can forget that. And whether they're fighting a war or not, those commoners can get swallowed up in the sort of, uh, the sort of um, abstract debates, the abstract threats that the kings hurled towards one another in the form of tennis balls. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that Shakespeare, and even the way he, he sort of weaves their scenes in between there is almost them getting swallowed up in between these moments of political intrigue, which I really love. I love the way he, I think that's one of the great benefits of him weaving it through the way he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. End of my monologue. No, I think that's very well said. And to point out, and I know that we'll get more deeply into this scene, but your point about uh, the cost to the common people and the question mark of Henry as is, we know we know he is becoming a good king but is he a good man right again that's that's one of the questions of this play is that mm. in this per- that scene that you just or that that speech from extra that you just read it is actually Henry who is there with his army to inflict that upon the French. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow Exeter is able to turn that around so that it's now on the, the French king's head. Right. To make this is this as, as is Henry Prince. attacking and then blaming France for defending itself. Yeah, and the and the court and the prince, the prince, he they play on the pride, you yes. know, of of the prince and the and on the pride of the French. Um, mm-hmm. at, least, at least, you know, he almost forces the king has no choice once the prince gets involved. Yes, that's true. Yes, and that's good. That's good statesmanship, right? Like that's right like, again. That is that's politically expedient. It is that is good statesmanship for the French king to feel responsible for and henry and henry knows that yes it's strategic of henry and exeter to poke at that particular nerve mm -hmm. right exactly exactly so but i mean that's it's also you don't logically there is no leg to stand on there right like if if you're marching into battle and killing french people then it isn't just the french people's fault (laughs) so that's like when when jack punches lucy and blames her right (laughs) she looked at me weird 
I'm like, yeah, but you punched her. So <laughs> it's like when the, it's like in football, uh, you watch enough football for this maybe to make sense. Uh-huh, I do. Most, yeah. I take naps during football. So I'm sure right. it's subliminally getting in there somehow. Right. <laughs> Every time I use a sports <laughs> metaphor for our 75% of w- listeners who are women, they're probably like, oh, here's David going. To another <laughs> I don't know why that's my voice for all the women who are listening, but um <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like when you're, well, I guess it's any sport, but uh, they always see the second person who starts hmm. you know, you never see the person who starts the fight. That's always, that's kind of like under the pile or in the crowd of people, but it's the guy who then rears back and takes a swing. He's like, when he started it, but right. it's all, it's that, that second one is the one that's the, the one that you notice and the one that has the most repercussions. And so, yeah, he, Henry is able to flip it around on him, but you, and in a sense, it's the only, like, by their code, I suppose, the only really honorable response for the French king is what he ends up doing, right? Right. He's been, somehow, he's allowed himself to get back into a corner. Of course, he probably didn't think that it was Henry and his people were much of a threat. But on Henry's side, do you think, is Henry's approach the honorable approach? I mean, we've talked well, about whether he's a good king and all that, and it's right. becoming a good ruler, but is what he's doing, is it the honorable sure. approach? Is Should- it honorable? That's a great question. That's the question. Uh, did he, you know, some of that goes to his motives. Does mm-hmm. he, again, is, can I with right and conscience make this claim? And that if he thinks that, you know, according to this late medieval mindset, if then he would he would truly have the blessing of God to take back the throne if his right if if the claim is righteous. So of course that's not our modern sensibilities, but according to them, of course it's honorable if he should be the king to give them a chance to lay down the crown and avoid the bloodshed. Right. So, mm-hmm. or you can look at it from the opposite. If if you want to read Henry as being a conniving, uh, power-hungry king and man, you certainly can. And then this is pure manipulation. And uh, yeah, even if it looks honorable, it's not. Oh no, I'm not wishy-washy. I am a I am pro Henry. I think that Henry is is a. I think he's fighting the battle between what it means to be a good man and a good king and um but that doesn't mean i don't think that he's that that he's playing strategically at times and in this particular mm-hmm. scene of course he is he is mm-hmm. strategizing a way to get what he wants so part, part of me part of me one i said i'd be the uh, devil's advocate on this on the show mm-hmm. part of me wonders if if i want to talk about whether it's an honorable action if like if you're going to make the claim for the crown why do you have to go up there and i mean sure make the demands but why do you have to go up there and then make it all about you know, like just take charge of the situation and be like, we're coming for you. Well, I have to make it like we're coming for you, but it's your fault, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, what's, well, because, what's, right. what's he going to do? Get on Twitter and complain about it? <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh, like, yes. I, mean, I guess posterity will remember it, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's, and and some would say just to cover himself, right? This is just Henry being able to throw up his hands and say, well, I gave it a try and they just, they made me do it. Um, 
And another interpretation, which happens to be mine, is again that this is good, good statesmanship that he is going in. I love and, how you said that. Another yes. interpretation, which happens to be mine, which happens to be mine, <laughs> as opposed to like I think. I don't think that there's any part of Henry that thinks that the French king is going to lay down the throne. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think no, so. Of either. course not. Of course yeah. not. Like, oh, thank you for this, you know, document you sent me. I'll give up first everything. Time ever. <laughs> for this young, of course, he doesn't think that, but it is good statesmanship. It is good politics to make the offer and then have the offer be refused. Okay, so then that, that brings us to scene two. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't literally bring us to scene two because it actually happens after scene two. <laughs> but in the course of the conversation, it now brings us onto the conversation of scene two. And in scene two, he has these three lords who have been treacherous including at least one of them who was quite close to him and and henry says you know he told them all his secrets um well i guess maybe not all of them but he, the point is he he was quite close to the king and they yes. they betrayed him and so then they have he kind of he kind of tricks them again right um it's kind of a nathan and david scenario here um mm-hmm. and he gets them to sort of doom themselves condemn themselves mm-hmm. and then sends them to their their death basically saying i have to protect the, this land i have to protect the crown i've got to protect the law you know i have basically i have to make an example of you do you think that he was his his approach there is is just i love this scene this might be my favorite scene in the whole play i oh, love wow. this scene i think everything i, I think he played this absolutely brilliantly and beautifully. And I do read his words as heartfelt, but you don't have to, again, you have to give people the freedom to say, well, I just think he's a jerk. Okay, cool. I think he's brilliant. And I think that this scene is perfect. And I think it's this scene more than the scene in scene uh, in act one that shows what Henry is capable of as a king and as a ruler. Um. So I don't know why this scene isn't more famous, but it just isn't. So, um, so I, I it's think, in act two. yeah, I guess so. Nobody ever remembers the scenes in act two. Um, yeah. I don't true. know that that's actually true from all. I'm sure there are famous act twos in Shakespeare, but this, this is a, I think partly because it's uh, because of where it is in this play, in a play that has these really big dramatic um, sort of conflict, like international political right. con- conflict scenes, you know, it comes between the French messenger of the tennis balls, which is so famous and hilarious and dramatic at the same time. And then it comes back or scene, th- scene four of this one, which we just talked about is also the sort of international political intrigue scene. So this is in some ways, it's a much more quieter sort of behind the closed doors, you know, scene. Uh, and Paul's also, it's sort of sad. So maybe people yeah. don't want to talk about it. Yeah. There's just, there's a lot happening in this scene. And I, so, and, and it's put right next to the scene in which we find out Falstaff dies. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's purposeful. I mean, everything Shakespeare does is purposeful, but I think that there's another level of pathos in that. I even felt that as I was rereading it this morning. And you know, I'm such a Henry fan. And yet I was thinking, if you don't like Henry, you 
he's undercut in the next scene, right? Yeah. Because right. Falstaff dies. And what Mistress Quickly says about him is that he, that, that, that the king's rejection of him killed him, mm-hmm. right? That's her claim. That's why he's dying. That's what he keeps talking. He keeps on his deathbed talking about how much he loved the king and the king's has, has killed him, his heart. Mm-hmm. So we have, if, if your interpretation of Henry is that he betrayed Falstaff, then here we have his just reward in this scene. Right now he's betrayed by his friends and he finally knows how it feels. And so that is a perfectly valid interpretation of this scene. I have always read it and continue to read it as another evidence of the king having to chain his passions within himself and 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 divorce himself more from what he loves mm-hmm. in order to yeah. step into the role of being the king mm-hmm. that these trusted advisors have betrayed him and and he gives them a chance to offer mercy right mm-hmm. you pointed out that this is a Nathan and David scene yes mm-hmm. it's also very reminiscent of the parable of Christ with the with the the man who when when Jesus talks about the master forgiving the man's debt and then he goes right around and beats his slave for or his servant for not paying him back a much smaller debt. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Henry gives him a chance as this guy was talking bad about me last night. What should I do? I think I'm going to give him mercy. And then these three who don't know yet that they have been discovered, that their plot has been discovered, they tell him, no, 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 you can't offer mercy. You have to show yourself as a strong king. And so you have to punish this man. And then, of course, that's when Henry Offert gives them the paper that they think is a diplomatic mission. They open it up to read it, and it is evidence of their betrayal, and they know that they have been caught. And, the, and, and it's this embedded stage direction when he says, why are your hands trembling and your face, so white? Your face is so white? Mm-hmm. And it's because they know they've been caught yeah. and that they have just rejected the opportunity to show mercy to someone who had a much smaller debt than theirs that has been exposed. So, of course, they're killed for their treachery and and it begging for mercy, and we have no idea whether we can believe that they're truly repentant or not. Mm-hmm. The, you used the word passion. You mentioned that he has to sort of divorce himself from the things that he love and loves, and that seems to be one of the big themes, the big questions of this play is, in, um, what role does th- when you, when you're in a position of leadership, what role does the things that you, the, the people, the things that you love, what role can it possibly play in terms of the just execution, no pun intended of your <laughs> job of the roles that you, that you have been given to accomplish. And of course, in Henry's case, he believes that this is a God-given role, right? And so there's something very richly, very rich about that That sort of, even thinking about from the perspective of the spiritual life, right? Like if you've been given a calling or given a gifting or something like that, if you're called to do something, then what role do the passions, do the things that we love play? And I don't mean passions like in a technical sense, but, but what do the passions mm-hmm. play in terms of the fulfillment of that calling? And that's a complicated 
it's a complicated thing going on there. And I think there's that that's another layer of of depth in this play that Shakespeare manages to accomplish. And it's not unique just to this play. It's a pretty Shakespearean concept or question. Um, mm-hmm. but I love that you brought that word up, the word passions up, which of course it's such a medieval, important medieval concept. Yes. Yes, it is. And this this play shows us the the very mirror of a Christian king. And yet it also shows us a man who has nothing that he desires Hmm. right he just has a role to play so in over the course of the three henry plays um henry four part one and part two and then henry five in in henry four part one and two prince hal as he's called then who's you know had this very wild youth we all know that um and these friends, and of course, Falstaff is the you know the fat knight, the jolly knight, the um, the the spirit of comedy. Everybody loves this, loves him, and um, he kind of brings this levity and jollity to Prince Hal and experience of the world keeps his spirits buoyant. Um, but throughout those plays. Henry has to cut himself, Prince Hal, excuse me, has to cut himself all off from everything human in his life, starting with Hotspur, who's his rival to the throne in Henry IV, Part One. He is to kill him in combat, who is his cousin that he grew up with. Now, in real life, in the historical record, we know that he barely knew Hotspur, and that Hotspur was like 20 years older than him. But Shakespeare, rightly, I think, changes that and makes him his childhood companion. Hmm who then has risen up against him to claim the throne. Again, that this was a question of virtue and wisdom at that time, not just power and, you know, conniving. It's so easy to us moderns to be like, well, you just put aside your claim because you guys are friends. That is not how it worked back then. And we can't put that modern judgment on these plays or we won't understand them. Mm. Um, so you, even, that, you, see yeah. that, you see that contemporaneously to our time now, even in, um, you know, like the crown. I think that's one of the yes. That's a show that I think has some major flaws, but I think some of those themes that are explored through the lives of the characters and through the this sort of um, complicated things they're going through, you know, that's that 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 is still a thing that they're dealing with now, hundreds hundreds of years after what Henry was going through. I think is it shows Absolutely. the universality of that. Um, we yes. all and and even if we're not kings and in positions of power, these are questions that are in some way meaningful or applicable to all of us. And that's why there's pathos in them. Right. Well, and that's where we get the idea of the royal we, right? Which we make fun of all the time. You know, the this you idea might. of the royal we, right? But yes, <laughs> but it's very real. The idea that if you are a king, right, the crown must always win because the, the crown is not a person. The crown is an institution that subordinates humanity to its demands. And that what that's what happened in the crown, and that's what happens in 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 the Shakespearean history plays. And those who do not, like Richard II, who allowed his humanity and his heart and his passions to guide him, granted they were not ruled well, but when he allowed himself to actually dominate the crown instead of the the crown subordinating his humanity to it, he was deposed and killed. And that's the beginning of this cycle of history plays to which Henry V is the capstone. 
So you have Richard II, who let himself be human, flawed human. I'm not talking about like, you know, like a good, really great guy. He, you know, stole money from his nobles and, right. And they, 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 I mean, really strongly pushed the homosexuality in the play as well as they could tastefully for Shakespeare's time. Um, it's very clear that he is sleeping with some of his nobles who are killed in the play. And then, um, and he's stealing money. So he is saying, you know what, forget it. I'm going to be a human and then I'm going to put the crown in subjection to my humanity. Mm-hmm. And he loses the crown and loses his life. And then you go through the whole, then you get Prince Hal in two plays in a row. And then in Henry V, you get a man who ruthlessly subordinates his passions and divorces himself to them. And he becomes the great king. And I think what I, I, But it's very clear in the play that he's the tormented man, but there's no nowhere he can go with that. He has to just completely ruthlessly kill and chain those passions, as he says in scene one, in order to become the king. Mm. Ruthless, man, that is a word that Mm -hmm. is worth keeping an eye on the ruthless right. sort of subjugation of the passions is is a is a fascinating way to think about what Henry's doing throughout this whole play, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's you know the ruthless subjugation of his passions is what happens with with, with that's why that's essentially why um, Falstaff dies is what she's saying mm-hmm. because he ruthlessly subjected that passion that he had Falstaff dies the the sort of yes. symbol of his passions yes um, exactly yes it, I mean, you said that so well Falstaff is and Falstaff doesn't rule himself in anything nothing mm. like he is passion just sloppily splashed all over the world <laughs> <laughs> so people love Falstaff I'm not a huge Falstaff fan that kind of person is not very appealing to me so I, I don't have the same kind of emotional reaction a lot of uh, Shakespeare lovers have to Falstaff mm-hmm. Harold Bloom who's probably the most popular to the masses kind of Shakespearean scholar of his yeah. day yeah. Uh, he loves Falstaff he really dislikes Henry sees him as conniving sees him as cold hearted and he loves Falstaff so, uh, and then uh, there are other scholars who feel differently. I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like, listen, we just got to control ourselves in life, like figure it out. Like, so, um, it's, but, it's, it's so inter- I tend to be more to Henry's, but it's all mm-hmm. emotional on our own parts. Like we, we react and respond to these characters based on ourselves. So mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I, I, um, I, it's so interesting that it, so if Falstaff is the passions personified to just put mm-hmm. it in a, in a way that I actually find annoying. Um, <laughs> if he's had the passions personified, then does that make does that make Henry sort of the opposite of the passions personified, or is or is that or or is it more like he's the opposite? He's he is the pursuit of the opposite of the passions personified. <laughs> right, that's a great question. I think when Falstaff dies, I think that's Shakespeare's symbolic moment that the the man is dead and the king is he is now the king. Mm. Like from here on out, you will see Henry the king, and so I think. And mm. this is the last scene. This is why I love this scene so much. This scene with the three traitors, Mm -hmm. I think this is the last time we see Henry actually 
allowing his humanity to play any role in his kingship. Now, later on in this play, we have him disguise himself, right? This is the play within the play part. When he describes himself and calls himself Henry Leroy and goes out amongst his, um, pretends to be a common man and goes out amongst his troops. And that's when we get any, the, first, any, the, the first and only small soliloquy of this play. Everything else is public. And we'll talk about that when we get there. I know we'll delve really deeply into that scene. Uh, but that is Henry taking away the trappings and the ceremonies of being a king and letting himself be a man. But here, as the king, this is the first time, this is the last time I think we see the king and the man together. And from here on out, it's always divorced. Mm. That's so interesting that he, so in Acts 2, in 2.1, mm-hmm. it's, the reintroduction of his, of the passions, essentially, of the people that he knew before. But then it's told that the passions, the symbol of the passions is sick and Mm -hmm. ill. It's not dead yet, but it's ill. And then, or it's dying. And then the next scene, we have him taking care of the traitors. And then in the very next scene, which is quite short, given what it's about, Falstaff is dead. Yeah. And so it's, so as you say, it's while he is doing away with his friends, while he's making this challenging, difficult decision, um, that that his that the symbol of his passions dies, right? It's, it's simultaneous to that, and we don't even need to have Falstaff on screen dying to make that doubly meaningful. His death and the death of his friends, these these lords, doubly meaningful. Um, so if we're if we're talking on that line of thought, though, then does that suggest that the passions themselves are treacherous? Or that Falstaff oh. himself was treacherous? Is that is that the implication then, if we're kind of following this sort of reading of it? Oh, that's Which such I think a good is, question. I yeah. think it's a great, I think it's a fun reading. I don't know that it's like, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to like, you can't get the get everything in the play without that. But, right. but, I, but there's a lot, it's pretty rich. Right. Well, and I mean, that's the whole point of these plays, right? It's, is that you can, if you can, as I tell my students, if you can prove something from the text, it's a valid interpretation, right? So, especially in Shakespeare, this is just, there's such richness here or so many possibilities of ways to read it that yes, um, I think this is very consistent reading. Yeah. As my, as my college, uh, Wordsworth professor, he taught me Wordsworth and and the Bronte sisters, weirdly. Anyway, as he used to say, um, and he cried every class, as he used to say, oh. if you can unpack it in the text, then it's a fairest, then you have made a yeah. just reading of it. Right. So, but if you can't, then you can't. So, right. um, but this, I, I think you're asking such a good question, but I, I think in the context of the play, the question is less, are the passions wrong for everybody as much as it is the can a king have any mm, okay right? like the can the king ever be a, a fully developed human and i sent you this on slack this week and i'm going to bring it up now the best picture that i can give this is if if any of if our of our listeners read george saunders um there's a scene in the book lincoln and the bardo which is a really strange book by the way but a great book i loved <laughs> this book it's very it's just kind of a weird Saunders is a genius he is maybe not shakespeare yes he is incredible and this book is absolutely brilliant i've i just wept my way through this book i'm like your professor who 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 would if i was teaching this book i would cry um but there's it's the book is about abraham lincoln 
And his son, which this is actually true in the historical record, but it's a fictionalized account of this. His son, Willie, died at age 11 of uh, typhus. And um, there's a scene in the book, Lincoln and the Bardo, in which uh, it's a ghost story, which is really cool. So Lincoln is at his son's tomb. It's one of those sarcophagus guy that has it's not a it's a sarcophagus so you can go inside of it there's a door and he pulls his the casket of his son off of the bench that it's on and he picks up his son's body and cradles it and weeps over his dead son meanwhile the ghost of willie lincoln is watching his father do this and he's he doesn't he hasn't quite realized that he's dead yet and so he's trying to put his ghost back into his body. This, this, this scene is just, I mean, it's, you can barely read it. Like he's trying so hard to get back into his body so he could feel his father's arms around him. He doesn't know why his father's crying and he can't do it. Mm. And it's what? these, <laughs> these other um, ghosts are watching this happen and that is in many ways the kind of this very similar image I get about Henry in this play is that there's this body that he, this, there's this divorce between the ceremony, the body of being the king, the royal we, representing the, royal, the nation. Royal yes. He, he is not just a man. He is no longer Henry. He is now, he's no longer Prince Hal. His name has changed even. The identifier of him has changed. Shakespeare did that purposely right he's no longer prince hal he can't have a nickname he is now henry the fifth and so he his humanity is now the ghost trying to figure out if he can ever fit back into that body Mm. Mm. and that is the conflict of the play and over and over and over again he always chooses the crown Mm. with that the the line where he's the this is an uh 2.2 2.2 at the end, line 166. He says, God quit you in his mercy. Mm. Hear, your, hear your sentence. You have conspired against our royal person. So there's your mm. royal we thing, right? Joined with an enemy. He doesn't say you've con- conspired against me. He says, mm. you've conspired against our royal person. Joined with an enemy proclaimed and from his coffers received the golden earnest of our death. Mm. And then he says, this is really interesting. He says, wherein you have sold your king to slaughter his princes and his peers to servitude, his subjects to oppression and contempt and his whole kingdom into desolation. Yeah. And then, and he talks about, he, he's as if to say, you know, the first time he talks about the King, he's talking, it's after he says, receive the golden earnest of our death. But it seems like when he talks about our death, it's not just the King he's talking about, but the print, all those princes and the peers that settling them to servitude, the subjects to oppression and contempt in the whole kingdom that, that the, that the, he is representative in and of himself of of something greater than just him. And so when he's standing outside, when he is outside of his body looking at the this king as the crown, he's also looking, he's not looking just at the throne or just at his, at his crown. Uh, he's not just looking at himself in a role, but he's looking at something bigger and larger and that is made up of all those people who he recognizes will suffer. And right. And he, all those poor, miserable wretches, um, which is what he calls the lords, but 
I think, yes. you know, that's, it's the way he uses that line there is, is really interesting. It kind of in between these accusations. Right. So, right. Well, and to add on to that, David, at the end of his long, his long speech, you know, like you pointed yeah, yeah. out, wouldn't it be so fun to perform that? His pronoun changes there at the very end. He says, I will weep for thee. Mm. Yeah, that's great. For this revolt of thine, methinks, is like another fall of man. Yeah, it's a great observation. So this this switching, this is why I think in this particular scene, we are seeing him, this, you cannot prove this from the text. This is a very psychological reading. What I think is happening here is that, he, it, this is how I would play it at least, if, let's say if I was being Henry, is that he is resolving that to, I can't have friends ever. I can't ever trust anybody. This was the closest that I have and I will weep for thee for this revolt of mine. Me thinks is like another fall of man. He betrays himself in a couple of places by using the personal pronoun, Mm -hmm. but really when it comes down to it, he is our and we, he is the Royal. We he's owning that in this scene and his, his sending away his close friends and advisors and confidants to be killed is in many ways a killing of himself and followed again by the death of Falstaff in the next scene that -hmm. takes place off stage. This is why I think Shakespeare had told his people he was going to bring Falstaff back and he doesn't. So there's a lot of scholarly debate on why that happens. And I think it's because it doesn't thematically fit with what he's trying to do in this play. And I think he didn't know that until he started writing it. Or maybe his actor died. Maybe that's, well, it didn't though, because that's part of the debate that I thought, I thought of that, but then I was reading all these Shakespeare commentaries, which I like to do. And so they were, they're saying, but they still had a false staff. Why didn't he put the false staff? Okay. Why didn't he so put the, him to work? Like, yeah. He had told people he was going to, and I think he started, this is just pure speculation. I think he started writing this play and was like, I can't bring false staff back. It doesn't work thematically for this play. Mm. So, so they had to have a meeting with that guy. Yep. Sorry. You're out of a job, but then he brings him back in Mary Wise of Windsor later, by the way. So look, I owe you yeah. <laughs> we'll bring you back. We'll figure it out. Just can't do it this time. And it's, it's so a future season. We'll do a yeah. flashback in a future season. Yes. And it's so weird. It's like such an odd scene, but anyway, so this is my theory for what it's worth. Um, since I'm the only one talking about this, we should get somebody who hates Henry on here to debate with me about this. So go ahead, David. <laughs> Well, the, I I love all this stuff about the passions being killed because you, you think think even more. Well, if you look at um, when the constable's talking to the dauphin or dauphin, mm-hmm. dauphin, or dauphin, dauphin the dauphin. Yep. Um, so the the French prince, the the fresh prince. So um, he says <laughs> he says you're mistaken. You know the he says who is it the yeah the prince says. Um. He calls him vain, giddy, shallow, mm-hmm. and humorous. He calls him a youth. Fear attends her not. So then, he's, then the constable says, you are too much mistaken in this king. Question your grace, the late ambassadors, with what great state he heard their embassy, how well supplied with noble counselors, how modest in exception, and withal how terrible and constant resolution. And you shall find his vanities forespent were but the outside of the Roman Brutus, covering discretion with a mm-hmm. coat of folly as gardeners do with ordure, hide those roots that shall first spring and be most delicate. And it seems like you could even read the, you could talk about the passions in a sense, in terms of those vanities. Hmm. 
that that those yeah. vanities have been forespent. They were, you know, covered with the discovering. Just they were discovered. He was using. He he was kind of playing a role, hmm. and right. he sheds that role when the time is right. Um, and, yes, and I th- and one of the things I've I've always thought about in terms of the character of Henry, and I don't know. This is again. This is me just kind of thinking about how people are but you can sort of imagine that even if even if they were sort of vanities like even if it was a disguise that he was putting on and that he was sort of preparing despite this disguise and dis- despite what it seems like to people he's preparing to take the throne even if that's the case you can imagine him getting close to these people mm. and the time and then when the time comes to throw that that coat off that that would be a difficult, challenging thing to do because, and that's, and I think that that might be one of the reasons why he he constantly touches on and his and Exeter does on his behalf constantly touches on the the role that the common man is going to play in this whole thing. Right. That yes. He he recognizes the humanity of these people. They're not abstractions. Yeah. In so many of these conversations, the average person who sells their horse needs the eight bob and is going to fight for him in the war and most likely die for him is an abstraction. They're sort of a statistic in a game of political risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but he has because he's gotten to know them. Yes, he has to cast off that jacket, cast off that coat, cast off that coat of vanities. But they're still he has learned to recognize they're still the people who make that royal we into a royal we. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that there's a lot of pathos, there's a lot of character in that recognition and it makes his job and his role and the actions that he takes that much more meaningful and powerful. Right. Right. I think you're right about that. And I, I think that one of the ways that Shakespeare so brilliantly brings that into Henry's character in Henry V is by bringing back Nim and Bardolph and Pistol and now quickly and into this play. And there's a really key scene with Bardolph later when they're on the war. And so there is this sense of Henry's past either coming back to haunt him all the time or Henry's past um, kind of informing his decisions of a, as the king so that he never forgets what it's like to be the common man. Um, so they're either an inconvenience to him that he's always trying to get rid of, which is one interpretation of Henry, or they Shakespeare keeps bringing them back in all the Henry plays to show that Henry wouldn't ever forget about these guys, even though he has to act like a king. At some point, he always has them in mind. That's why he's constantly talking about the common man. It's because he's had such a close relationship with them. So, yeah. and I do, I do think that it's important to bring up also that those who interpret Henry as conniving, manipulative, and, and, um, and power-hungry will always point out that that Falstaff's death happens um, in order to kind of be to point out Henry's um, the bad parts of his character. So that he that if Falstaff is really just this jolly spirit of comedy, then his death means that anything good in Henry has actually died here. Mm-hmm. 
And that from here on out, he's, he is so absorbed into the ceremony of being king that his humanity, anything that kind of tied him to his past and to his humanity, to the man that he was, is dead with Falstaff. And now he's just kind of an empty shell of a person. Mm. So everybody kind of interprets this Falstaff's death here as very symbolic and really important, but there's multiple interpretations of it. Shakespeare. Come mm-hmm. on, man. I know, right? Just when you think you've got yep. to figure yep. it figured out. <laughs> slips through your grasp. <laughs> um, well, with that, we should probably begin to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a close reads podcast, so it takes a long time to wrap up. Like Christmas at my parents' house. So, um, <laughs> and just as great. So, um, any final thoughts? Oh, that question. I didn't even write down any final thoughts this time. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. We did. We did cover <laughs> a lot of ground. Um, I do think that it's worth pointing out then the, um, kind of the point counterpoint issue of Henry and the Dauphin um, that he sends, Henry sends a personal insult to the Dauphin in, um, in this last scene. Uh, As you pointed out, that's the, the, the King having to defend his son's honor is the nail in the coffin that leads them to war. There could potentially have been a diplomatic solution until Henry insulted the Prince. Um, and yeah, then at that speaking, point, that's not something you forgive. Right. And an interesting historical note here is that the, the king in this particular scene I, is, was actually in the historical record. We can find out that he was actually mad, that he had these moments of insanity. But Shakespeare writes him as like a very well-balanced kind of honorable man. And there's been lots of questions about that over, did Shakespeare not know that he was mad? Did he intentionally leave that out because it worked better for the play? Um, so that's an interesting thing to speculate on. It seems like that would have been a pretty cool, fun detail to write into this play. Um, but Shakespeare didn't do it. So, well, I can't, you can, I mean, some characters have to just sort of, I mean, you can't have everybody be, <laughs> a mess. If everybody's a mess, it's hard to wrap it all up at the end. Right. Which well, explains the, why this show is so hard to wrap up. I mean, right. Which to, goes to maybe Shakespeare wanted to kind of focus on the tension between the two young men, the young king and the young mm, prince, and yeah. them both being kind of hot headed and um, maybe. Um, and definitely the Dauphin underestimates Henry in this scene and everybody tells him that and he won't listen. And, and then, of course, you have the, the concept that the, this sort of stoic french king is that an oxymoron the stoic french king <laughs> um is sort of a foil to to both his to his son certainly but also to henry who no longer has his father there to to offer him counsel um and so there's, there's that part of it but also his, his stoicism is sort of counter to maybe stoicism is the wrong word his sort of slow action is sort of counter mm-hmm. to henry's decisiveness right um and then you have these two men who, like, what would the French prince have done, the French prince have done without, uh, <laughs> without Carlton? Um, Such an important <laughs> question. Really, but, pop culture and Shakespeare, they're just parallels. We, that, that is a question we probably really do need to spend multiple episodes on. What would <laughs> the French prince have done without Carlton? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready for that joke. That really, that's pretty funny. 
Now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, I'm, there's serious questions. That That's true. Well, there's I'm, a real question. Well, anyway, uh, thanks for joining me again. And uh, to everybody who's listening, don't forget, if you have questions about Henry V, you can post them over on the Facebook page, the Facebook group. If you're not a member of that, you can uh, ask to join. We will get you approved. You can also send them to closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to, to follow the Instagram page and to subscribe to the newsletter to get maximum Close Reads exposure, which you may not want. But if you want it, then you can find it in all those different places. Um, we will be recording... Um, a couple of days after Christmas, I, I, I suppose. So um, the weekend of the weekend of New Year's, right before New Year's, you'll get another episode of this, and then of course we'll be bringing you a close reads episode on the Great Gatsby, finishing up that conversation this weekend, a little bit after this episode goes up, most likely, and then also the Q and A episode of that. If you've been listening to all of these, and again, don't forget about the daily poem. If you want to get a daily dose of a brief daily dose of poetry for while you're taking your morning multivitamin, then that's a metaphor that you can roll with if you want to think about that a little bit. Um, So are you good? Any final thoughts? Anything else you want to say? Nope. Merry Christmas to all. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) To all a good night. (laughs) For Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Raised Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading and Merry Christmas. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.